ask me why, why are you addressing this topic uh, on Sunday morning? And two reasons really. Uh, one is, well, the scriptures address this topic, so we need to be hearing what the scriptures say. And it was a topic that was kind of raised for us a few weeks ago in in a passage in Revelation, but we didn't have the time or space uh, there to kind of flesh out the details of it. Uh, the second reason, though, is it is a, a topic that is the hot topic in our world at the moment. Uh, you can hardly turn on the news or the radio or the internet without seeing the issue of marriage and whether it should be just between a man and a woman or whether it's open to other combinations uh, or the issue of gender. Uh, is someone male or female or can they change or can they identify as something different? Uh, it's, it's right there in our faces all the time. And so it's really important that we as God's people are grounded in a biblical understanding so that we will be able to answer questions, respond to objections, correct people's wrong assumptions about what we as Christians believe and teach, um, but most importantly so that we, we will be able to bring the gospel to people who need to hear it in the context of these conversations. I don't think it's an exaggeration that many Christians have been caught off guard by the rapid changes that have happened in our world, in our society, uh, in the last couple of decades around gender and marriage. Partly that's because I think, at least in the West, we've wrongly assumed that Christian beliefs and values are still pervasive in our community uh, but in reality, they're kind of more like a veneer and that veneer is beginning to, to crumble. So in the face of these rapid changes, because we've just kind of assumed a Christian view and maybe because we haven't really been thoroughly taught ourselves about what the biblical view is, we're not quite sure how to respond. Or if we do respond, we respond Wrongly, So it's so important that we have a biblical framework for understanding this matter and so we can be the light of Christ in this world of darkness. I want to just point out initially four insufficient places for us to start in talking about this issue. They're not necessarily wrong in and of themselves but they can't be the foundation on which we build our worldview or give a response because they're not, they're not a biblical foundation. Uh, the first way we might respond is from the point of view of sociology where we say this is good or bad for our society. Now if we argue from that level, there's always going to be counter-arguments and we'll actually end up just shouting at one another about things that are temporal, not eternal. Things may be good or bad for society, but remember the gospel, the gospel ultimately isn't about improving or reforming the world. It is about heralding the world to come. The goal of the gospel is not to make the world a perfect place. 
That's what Christ will do when he returns as judge. Or we might start from science. We might say, well, biology or nature tells us that this thing is right or wrong. Again, often we'll end up having arguments because for everything we say there'll be a counter-argument. Science is good because it is the study of God's world. There's nothing wrong with science. But we need to remember that science is a study of God's world which is fallen. God's world is under a curse. The world is not the way it was designed to be nor the way that it will be in the new creation. So science can describe for us the way things are but it cannot tell us the way things should be. So it's not the right starting point. We might come from the angle of personal preference. So this thing, this belief, this view, this practice is wrong because I don't like it. Well, taste is relative. Something that I find delightful might for someone else be disgusting or vice versa. God's truth is based on his absolute standards of who he is, not on what feels good or bad or seems good or bad to us. So we can't start with personal preference. Or we might come from moralism. God says it's wrong, so if we do it, he'll judge us. Now that's the law. The law tells us that, doesn't it? But the law was given to reveal sin. It doesn't give us the solution to sin. It can point out that something is, is wrong, that a solution is needed, but the law in and of itself cannot give us the solution. It can condemn us for our sin, but it cannot save us from our sin. Now, one thing that all four of these starting points have in common is that they all start with us, with our needs, our observations, our preferences and ultimately our glory. The Bible, however, tells us we need to start somewhere else other than us. We need to start with God. We need to be clear on who God is and who we are in light of who he is and his plan and then we'll get all the other things into place. So we need to start not with these uh, horizontal things but with the vertical things, with God's grand narrative. We'll only understand the true nature of gender and of marriage when we have a right view of the triune God and what it means to be made in his image as human beings. Hopefully that's readable to you there. So let's uh, take this journey. So it'll actually be a little while before we actually get onto gender and marriage because we need to have that foundation of the reality of God himself. So the triune God and the eternal covenant. God isn't 
a single person. He is a community of three. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, united in love. Someone has described it as the Father who has always loved his Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's our only basis for saying God is love. If God was just a single person, how could he love before he created the world? So we are not the first objects of God's love. God's love for us is an overflow of that love of Father, Son and Spirit that's always been there for all eternity. And it's in the context of that love, that Trinitarian love, that we see what theologians have called the eternal covenant, the plan set in place from before the creation of this world. The Father had a plan. His plan was to honour his Son by creating for him and through him and by him a universe, a world that displays his glory, a creation that will be ruled over by creatures who are in the likeness of his beloved Son. Well, the Son delighted in the Father's plan and his goal in all things is to glorify his Father by obeying him, by entering this universe, this creation and becoming the Redeemer of sinners, laying down his life and leading all those creatures whom he has redeemed to glorify the Father as they worship the Son. We've seen that recently, haven't we? The the Lamb on Mount Zion with the 140,000 redeemed who are worshipping before the throne. The Spirit also loves this plan and he honours the Father and the Son by working to bring this plan to completion. He was there right at the very beginning, shaping and forming creation. He was there in the work of redemption as Christ offered himself by the eternal spirit and he'll be there uh, forming and shaping and filling the new creation. That's the foundation upon which everything rests. It's the reason for creation, the Father made this whole universe for his son. It's what gives everything in creation, including us, meaning and purpose. Knowing that should transform our view of everything because it takes us out of the centre of our universe and puts God back where he belongs in the centre of all things. He is the centre of all things, not us. He is on the throne, not us. All things are for his praise and glory, not for our praise and glory. But it should then cause us to, to wonder, to marvel with gratitude at the immense privilege 
and honour bestowed upon us that God decided that we would be the means by which the Father, Son and Spirit would demonstrate their love for one another. We exist for God's glory, but what a privilege that is to be chosen, to be the ones by which the Father will glorify the Son. So every part then of how God designed us reflects this grand narrative of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. So we saw that in Genesis 1 verse 26. God stated his his intention in verse 26, let us make man. Note that that's not a thought, it's a conversation, let us. It's a conversation between Father, Son and Spirit. And his intention is that humanity, human beings, would be uniquely primary among all of the living creatures that he makes. And he'll that will be demonstrated by us doing God's work in creation to bring about God's purposes. See how there are two aspects to this high human calling. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And there's the overlap of the two, which is fill the earth. So our obedience to the first aspect of the calling will result in a filling and the filling will then enable us to be obedient to the second aspect, to rule and have dominion. This is the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God. The image of God is essentially about sonship, the Son is like his Father. The Son, the Eternal Son, images his Father. So while our default thinking about the image of God, being made in the image of God, is that it gives us uh, dignity and value and worth as human beings, that's not actually the way that the Bible talks directly about the image of God. The image is primarily about a high human calling, a responsibility to act for the dignity and worth and value of God. Our dignity, value and worth will flow out of that, but our focus is on God's worth. Our multiplication, our filling the earth, our subduing and ruling over the earth, having dominion over all creatures is all about the glory of God, filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. So this creational calling given to human beings, made in the image of God, is the basis then for our creation as male and female. See how God makes this duality of human beings seem, uh, or not seem, but is something that is integral to the outworking of 
his plan. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. The image of God is male and female. That's not to say that God is a mixture of male and female. Gender is an exclusively creaturely trait. But being made male and female means that the image of God cannot be expressed by one individual in isolation from others or by males or females in isolation from one another. We need one another in order to be truly human, both in the sense of community but also male and female. Uh, There's a famous quote by a feminist, I can't remember her name, she said, women need men like fish need bicycles. That's kind of the modern mentality, but God created us to say, no, you, you cannot exist, you cannot be truly human unless you are together male and female. So recognising my gender is part of what defines me as a human being in my similarity to others and in my difference to others. And that's a reflection of the triune God, the God who is one but three, three in one. Each person is only fully known in the context of their relationship to the others, never apart from the others. When we say God is Father, Well, he can't be father unless he has a son. When we say Jesus is the son of God, that means God is father. We cannot know just one member of the Trinity without knowing uh, all of them. So just as we can't have the fullness of God in the absence of one of the persons of the Trinity, humanity is not truly human without both male and female. Now, how does this relate to the high human calling? Well, men and women each have an area of primacy in this twofold high calling. Women in that first section have a primacy in terms of multiplication through childbearing. Men have a primacy in that second part of the mandate of subduing and ruling through roles of leadership. And we see that uh, expressed very clearly in the New Testament uh, as we see how men and women work together in the context of family and the church. This dynamic of... Oh, there it is. Thanks, Peter. This dynamic of male and female, in the context of this high calling of humanity, is then fleshed out, literally, in that second passage we saw today in Genesis chapter 2. God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. He isn't saying there's something wrong with the man, but it's saying that this high calling, this creational mandate, needs more than one person in order for it to be 
fulfilled. The man needs to be doing God's work in the context of community and partnership with others. So God determines, I will make a helper fit for him. That phrase uh, is a phrase meaning corresponding to. So this helper that God is to make for the man, this helper must be similar enough to him for there to be true fellowship and communion, commonality, but they must also differ from one another in order to perfectly complement each other and to contribute in different ways uh, in their union. So, the animals, they can be helpers, but they're not one flesh with the man. They're not bone of his bone or flesh of his flesh for there to be that true complementarity. So in verse 23, see how being male and female then is right at the heart of this grand narrative. It's the means by which God will ensure that creation will reach its goal of being filled with the glory of Father, Son and Spirit. So what does that mean? That means to, to blur or to deny or try to change or multiply gender is to actually deface the image of God. It not only degrades our human dignity, but it defames God, whose image we bear. It's a claim to have come up with a better design than God has, to know better than God. In short, it's a form of idolatry. You may hear people say today that gender is just a social construct or it's something that is just assigned to someone and it's different to biological sex. So that means people are free to choose or identify whatever gender they feel is right for themselves. The Bible says no such thing. Gender is designed and given by God. Our biological makeup and anatomy is the God-given indicator of our gender, but it's also the perfect design for us to enable us to fulfil that creational calling as men and as women. Verse 24 then begins with therefore, meaning what's been said just before that is the basis for what he's to say next. So being male and female, flesh of flesh and bone of bone, is the basis, the reason then for marriage. Because male and female is intrinsic to who we are, then marriage is also a given. It's the design of God. Notice that it's not framed here as a command. 
as a moral imperative. It's a description. It's not, therefore a man should be joined to his wife, but therefore a man shall. It's intuitive, it's a given. It's not a social construct. It's a gift and design of God that is innate to who we are. Now, Jewish children were encouraged to learn by asking questions and Jewish parents were instructed to teach their children by giving the answers through telling stories. For example, when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. By telling the stories of what the Lord had done in their history, the child would see that the basis for all things is found in knowing the Lord and experiencing his work in your life and in the life of your community. So we could imagine a Jewish child asking Abba, why do ladies and men get married? Father would respond by telling them the story of Genesis 1 and 2. That's also the place that Christian parents should start when our children start asking these sorts of questions. Ground them in this glorious narrative, this glorious vision of humanity created in the image of God, given this magnificent role to play in creation, designed perfectly for the task, men and women working together in loving, perfect unity. Now, of course, the story doesn't end there, does it, in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not just looking back to the creation, but it's also looking forward to the goal of this grand story. Our male and female design isn't just pragmatics. It's not just about getting the job done of multiplying, filling the earth and ruling. All human relationships are supposed to be covenantal relationships, built on promises, built on faithfulness that, that reflect that eternal covenant between Father, Son and Spirit, displaying something of those Trinitarian relationships and how this triune God of love relates to us as human beings. Marriage is like the pinnacle of these human relationships, being the clearest picture in creation of God's relationship with his people, of Christ and the church. So marriage is between one man and one woman for life to the exclusion of all others, not just because it's good for society, but because Christ is the sole husband of his bride the church. He, the church is the one bride 
that Christ has betrothed himself to. So the man holds fast to his wife and they become one flesh, speaks of a permanency that's only ended in death, but not because it gives us a sense of security and a good foundation to build society on, but because that foreshadows the day when Jesus would come and become one flesh with us, unite himself to us in a bond that can never be torn apart. Today, husbands and wives who stay together will eventually be separated by death. But even if, hypothetically speaking, even if sin had not entered the world and death had not spread to all people, there would still come a time, I believe, when human marriages would come to an end. At the arrival of the reality which human marriage foreshadows, the true, eternally planned marriage between Christ and us, his church. So the the main tragedy of churches who endorse and celebrate same-sex marriage isn't just that they're disobeying God's commands or promoting immorality, but it's a sign of a deeper sickness that began with losing sight of this glorious gospel of Jesus who was sent by his father to seek his bride. So what the church says then about gender and about marriage, it's not a side issue. We can't agree to disagree. It's not something like the mode of baptism or the types of songs we sing. It is a gospel issue because to deny God's given design for male and female and for marriage is to take an axe to the root of the gospel itself. Let's see what Romans 1 has to say about this. Although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or gave thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. See how three times we're told God gave them up. Why? Well, the reason why God gave them up 
is they exchanged the glory of God for images, verse 23. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, verse 25. And verse 28, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. So what's the cardinal sin here? We might zoom in onto the sexual immorality part of it, but what is the sin? It's idolatry. Refusing to acknowledge, to refusing to worship or to thank God for who he is. Because of that, God's act of wrath upon this sin, big S sin, is to give us up, to become slaves to our passions and desires and then to reap the consequences of these desires. So this distortion of gender and marriage is presented here. It's not just one sin among many sins, but in a sense, because marriage is the pinnacle of human relationships, this is the sin that is like the pinnacle, the ultimate expression of human sinfulness. As we've seen, because it cuts right to the heart of God's good creational and redemptive purposes. But we need to see what's, what's happening here. This cardinal sin of idolatry gives birth to all the other sins we commit. Sinful acts are in a sense symptoms of the real sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're idolaters. It's the outworking of God's wrath on our idolatry that we're allowed to pursue our sins to our destruction. Now that should change the way we as Christians view the state of our society. We shouldn't be thinking if people keep doing these things, one day the wrath of God will come upon our our world, our society. But instead, God's wrath is already on these people, demonstrated by the fact that he's lifted his restraining hand and allowed human sinfulness to express itself in this way. So people aren't merely waiting for God's future wrath. They are living under it now. Why that's so important for us to see is that it changes how we view people. We no longer see them as enemies who need to face God's vengeance but we'll see them as people who are under judgment who need to hear a message of God's mercy. Remember what we saw in Revelation in regards to God's judgments? In the present time, his judgments are judgments of hope, of mercy, designed not to punish but to call people to repentance and faith in Jesus. So thinking this way will move us from an us-versus-them mentality in which we see us as the embattled few who are fighting this cultural war against those who might want to destroy us or bring us down to a more compassionate approach where we realise, well, 
We're no better than anyone else. We are sinners who have received mercy. We're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. The little book of Jude, often overlooked, gives us some very practical and helpful instructions on how to respond, not just to this issue of gender and marriage, but really to to any issue in all things. He gives us four instructions. Firstly, you beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We need to be grounded in God's word so that we're ready to answer from a biblical worldview, seeing that the gospel is the ultimate answer to all of the questions that we may ask or be asked. So build yourselves up in your most holy faith. And we're to do this as we look to the mercy of Jesus, the day that he appears to bring justice to the world, the day he comes to renew all creation in which we're citizens of that new creation, not because we've got things right, but because of his mercy. As Jesus told his disciples, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, that you've gone out and fought the battle and you've won, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Then we're told to have mercy on those who doubt. Now you may be clear where you stand on this issue. Most likely you are standing on this issue because you've had a time of questioning, of exploring, of reading the Bible, of working things out in your own mind, in your own heart maybe even struggling with things. We need to remember that our different experiences and relationships will mean that not everyone will take the same time on that journey of being clear on what the Bible says. For some, it will mean a much longer, more difficult journey of wrestling with things, of trying to understand things, And we may not understand one another's struggles in those areas because we haven't experienced what they have. So we need to show gentleness and patience to those who are still learning, still struggling, whether it's their beliefs about this thing or whether it's their own private battles with their own desires in these areas. Then we're told to snatch others by, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Some things are clear cut. Fire is dangerous. If someone needs to be rescued because their house is burning down, they don't need to be reasoned with. They need to be rescued, snatched from peril. This applies to us, I think, in two, two areas. It applies to our children, our young ones. Our children need to be guarded, protected 
from being led astray by dangerous ideas and by peer and society pressure. So we need to support, we need to pray for and encourage the parents in our church who are seeking to raise their children in this world that is full of darkness. They need to have the strength and the courage to stand firm, to make decisions that may mean opposition from friends or even family, may be difficult even for the children to come to terms with what the parents are doing, but it's, we need to pray and support them in that as they keep their children safe from the fire, so to speak. But this also applies, I think, to any brother or sister in the church who has unthinkingly embraced the ideas or even the lifestyles promoted by the world's view of gender and marriage. We need to love one another enough to, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, to reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Thinking and living wrongly on this issue will harm us. So we need to love one another enough to graciously correct one another if the need is there. And then fourthly he says to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. I believe this speaks of how we are to address those outside the church, non-believers, who need to hear the gospel message of mercy. We need to have gospel-shaped compassion towards those who are living under God's wrath outside of Jesus Christ. Unless we engage with people in a way that points them to Jesus, to this grand narrative, we'll just end up having debates about morality or society or science and we'll just leave people in condemnation instead of leading them into grace. Remember, it's the gospel, not the law, that's the power to save those who believe. Remember also, such were some of you, verse 11 there, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We can show mercy to those living presently under God's wrath because we know that we're only standing in the grace of God because mercy was first shown to us by Jesus. Now, I need to finish this message by saying I know for sure that this message has been heard or will be heard by at least a few people who have, have been personally impacted by this issue. Whether it's a friend or a family member who's struggled with or who has embraced a certain lifestyle or whether it's your own personal private struggles with desires and feelings that you know doesn't reflect God's design for gender or marriage. These are not battles 
that we should be facing and fighting on our own. That's what the church is for. A company of sinners who all live together under the grace of God with whom we can confess our sins, share our weaknesses, keep one another accountable, spur one another on to live for God's glory. If there's anyone we can and should trust with our own personal and spiritual needs, it's our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if this is a raw issue for you, if what I've shared today has stirred things up within you, then seek that pastoral care from one of the elders here or from a mature Christian that you know and trust who can uh, care for you and, and guide you in that. Let's pray.